If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. These words of our Lord Jesus Christ from the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. These words we hear this morning from Jesus should rightly haunt us. Did I hear what I think I just heard? I must hate my own father and mother. I must hate my wife. I must hate my children. I must hate my brothers and sisters. I must hate my own life. And that if I don't do that, I cannot be the Lord's disciple? Well, these are strong words. They're meant to unsettle us, just as they were meant to unsettle the disciples who first heard them, those great multitudes coming to hear Jesus. And he doesn't give them words they want to hear. He gives them words they don't want to hear. You must hate. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I would say to you this morning that some interpreters of the text have encouraged a reading of this text that softens the word hate to something like love less or have lower regard for, something like that. And I will say from the outset that while I'm personally sympathetic uh, to that reading, just out of my own desires, there is also something in these words which is meant to be disturbing, meant to jostle our conscience from complacency. It actually does say hate. Clearly, we must say, of course, that the gospel calls us to love our neighbor, to love our families, to love wives and husbands, especially to love our children, especially to love and honor father and mother. The command of the New Testament is clear. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church and wives to love their husbands. The husband is to give himself up to his wife and likewise. That is not called into question by these words of Jesus. There is something else being called into question. And if I can put it simply this morning and get straight down to business, what's being called into question this morning is our idolatry. The idolatry that leads us, even if slightly, away from total and complete surrender and obedience to Jesus Christ, the Lord, that looks very much like taking up a cross and following him, because that is, after all, the next phrase in this text, that we must take up the cross. The prohibitions against idolatry of old served to remind the people that they were beholden to God, to the God of Israel and to him alone. You shall have no other gods before me. The people come up out of Egypt with Egypt in their hearts, And God reminds them that it is he who brought them up out of slavery. And so he says, you shall not make for yourself a graven image or anything or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You'll remember that when Moses comes down from the mountain, what does he find? 
Well, apparently, somewhere along the line, uh, there was some melting gold, and out jumped a calf. In the land full of competing priorities and competing deities, the people of Israel are commanded to serve and worship God only. They are to choose to cleave to God, as Moses would later put it in Deuteronomy, loving him far above all the rest. They are even to love God with spousal affection, to see God as their husband. The claim Jesus is making here is that all must be renounced, even the ties of the family, even the bond of marriage, for the sake of discipleship. And this is a claim he is making as the God of Israel in the flesh. A mere man cannot make this claim. One who is merely a teacher, even a good teacher, cannot prioritize himself above these other commands. Only the one who is God in the flesh can do this. We see further that Jesus is establishing a new covenant family, not based upon blood, but based upon what? The gift of faith. The gift of faith in God and God alone. You and I are raised to seek the admiration and affirmation of our parents. We are conditioned over the course of many years to pattern our lives on their values, on their priorities, what will make them proud of us. Many people today will work themselves to the bone to earn the admiration and love of their parents. They will exalt that admiration above just about anything else. It can be disastrous for a young person when they see their parents doing things that they don't approve of because this identity is shot. I've often watched as people have watched their parents slip into dementia and the difficulties of that, and that's one of the most horrible things of all is that they can no longer get that affirmation from their parents. Married people also learn over many years to do only those things which will increase our admiration in the sight of our husband or wife. You learn over the years, don't forget that anniversary. Don't forget this. Don't forget that. Take out the trash. Unload the dishwasher. All to be loved. And these aren't bad things, but sometimes we do them for other reasons. We desire approval. For after all, the adage goes, happy wife, happy life. We desire the admiration of our children and will do almost anything to avoid their disappointment in us. Very few parents cannot remember a time in which they sorely disappointed their children. We even love our own lives. We do what makes us happy. We pursue all kinds of goods and goals so that we can attain to that happiness. We even want to be admirable in our own eyes. And many Christians have lived under the impression that seeking and desiring all of this, all of this admiration, approval, affection, that all of this is the path to conformity to the will of God. We think that if we can win the admiration and approval of our parents or our children or our spouses or our bosses or our friends, even our own approval, then we will be acceptable before God. And that, my beloved friends, is garbage. It's all garbage. If you search your heart, you will find that your desire for approval, your desire for affirmation and admiration, 
are little more than idolatry, a form of misplaced worship. The one you really seek is God. In the ancient world, you would place the idol on your mantle and pray to it for rain or good crops or the blessing of children. And if those things were provided, well, thanks be to the idol. If they were withheld, it must have been because you did something wrong. You angered the gods. You didn't get the ritual right. And so what you feel is shame. And the admonition of Paul to the Romans in this regard is dead on. He says, ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, God's invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. Any of you have an idol on your mantelpiece? Didn't think so. We've far advanced that now. We have living idols in our lives. And the desire to be affirmed and admired by them, the desire to be blessed by them, the desire to be respected by them, even loved, can be absolutely ruinous. Two weeks ago, we recounted the story of Cain and Abel. Cain desired to be respected and regarded by God on his own merits. He thought he was worthy of affirmation. He thought he was worthy of praise, and he wasn't. And so in his anger, full of evil deeds, he killed his brother. This desire, this pride is senseless. It's foolish. It's futile. And when we desire this admiration and affirmation from others, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for our own image as an end in itself. And I would venture to say today that one of the main issues we face today as a church is simply this, the desire to be affirmed, admired, and thought well of by others. Even the desire to shift subtly, but in ways that are not so subtle, our thoughts, our thinking, our doctrine. Now maybe you're one of those people who have been raised to so desire this affirmation and admiration from your mother and father that your life is a mess of shame at not being what they think you should be, not having the accomplishments or the money or the house or the education. Or maybe you're like me, and you come home on a Tuesday afternoon, and I'm going to be raw and personal here. There are toys all over the front steps, and you curse. The house is a mess, and you're angry, and the kids are running wild, and you're frustrated. And your first thought is, I'm so ashamed. I'm ashamed of my own children, ashamed of my household, ashamed of my family. And why? because of what my parents would say. Because of what I think they would say. Even then, because of what I think you would think. How can I be led by a man whose life is such a mess? And worst of all, I'm ashamed because of what I think of it. And shame is a cheap substitute for responsibility, by the way. 
I've been raised to measure my life according to the conditions of an idolatrous society. An idolatrous society that places material success and personal well-being, having it all together, far above faithful discipleship, the kind that leads us to the cross. And it is at this very moment that I must awaken to the true reality of my life and my value. Not that I'm a child of this person or that, or that I'm the husband of this woman, or because I'm the father of these children, or because I'm the priest of this parish, but because I'm a child of God. Not because of what I can do, or the value I bring, or because of what I've done, or because of how pristine my life is, which it's not, but because of the grace of God and the gift of Jesus Christ, my Lord. I need to awaken to this, to this responsibility that I have as his, to know his grace and to abandon myself to his love and care. Yes, I must hate my parents. Kids, don't take this as permission. Get the drift, get the meaning. I must hate my brother and sister. I must hate even my wife. I must hate even my own children and what they think of me. And it is precisely through doing that that I may truly love them. Not with conditions, not wishing they were better, not wishing they satisfied me more, not wishing that I could affirm them more or love them more if only it would be like this, if only you would do this, if only you were like this. But with the unconditional sacrificial, self-denying love of Jesus. My children, my wife, my parents, my brother, my sister, and you all need the witness of seeing their father, husband, son, brother, priest, measure his life according to the standard of Jesus Christ and not the cleaned up, ready for TV, bright-eyed Jesus, but Jesus Christ and him crucified even if you hate me for it. And there are times I freely confess when I'm not in the mood to be hated. I would rather be loved. No amount of softening of this hard saying can betray the truth that this is idolatry of the worst sort, the idolatry of the self, which we simply call pride. And my brothers and sisters, this is a problem in the church. We trot out the ideal Christian life as some sort of pristine image, something uh, beautiful by the world's standards. Uh, Father Nicholas and I love sharing the example of the, the magic couch. You've seen it in ads for churches. It's a, it's a white couch with a family with 2.3 children sitting on it, and that couch has not a stain anywhere. And I think to myself, how can I get that couch? In fact, we had a white couch when we were first married, and it was not white after having kids. The truth is this. As long as we place familial goods, marital goods, material goods, above the priority of discipleship, you and I will become futile in our thinking, our minds darkened, we will lack wisdom and persist in childish, childishness and foolishness, and we will not go with Jesus to the cross will refuse. 
But if we measure all of our lives by the faithful and true standard of the gospel, which is that of obedience, submission, and surrender to Jesus Christ, we will walk in the light in the pursuit of wisdom and true godliness, and we will walk to the cross. I would suggest today that if you've been sluggish in your reading of Holy Scripture, that you begin a practice of daily reading and meditation on Scripture. We as Anglicans have this wonderful gift called the daily office, and I want to encourage you in it. I would suggest that if you've lapsed in your daily prayers, that you take that up as well. It's all too easy to give up praying. And I love what St. Augustine says about this. At the end of the day, we'll either give up praying or give up sinning. We can't have both. (laughs) Lastly, a more practical suggestion, if there could be, Before we consecrated this church, before we even began to use it, I placed two objects around this pulpit. The one you can see, it's this crucifix here. The other is a plaque, which I put right there, which every preacher who occupies this pulpit sees immediately. And it's simply the quotation from John chapter 12, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I put these here so that both the preacher and you can measure every sermon by the standard of Christ and him crucified. This is the standard of good Christian preaching. It's also the standard of good Christian living. So I want to make the suggestion that perhaps you consider placing a cross somewhere in your house as a way to measure your Christian life properly against Christ and him crucified. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.